1: Oh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Worldwide Clinical Trials for Blood Cancers. And I have to say this is the first time we've done a program in terms of talking about the whole worldwide picture of clinical trials, and this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, many other cancer organizations, and blood cancer organizations as well. And really, because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic, we have over 470 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and we also have international participants from the United Kingdom, so a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Estela's US LLC, and we really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, really just the best, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. William Bensinger, and Dr. Bensinger is, center, is with the Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, SCI's Personalized Medicine Program, Myeloma and Transplant Program, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Bensinger is going to address overview of clinical trials, understanding that clinical trials take place in the United States and globally, and how clinical trials contribute to your blood cancer treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn the panel over to Dr. Bensinger.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. I think it's really hard to overestimate how important clinical trials are in the treatment of diseases in a broad sense, but specifically in the treatment of multiple myeloma. Virtually all of the new drugs that we have available for myeloma have become available because of clinical trials, and this includes thalidomide, lenalidomide, pomalidomide, bortezomib, carfilzomib, exazomib, uh, panobinostat. It also includes the newer drugs such as daratumumab and the supportive care agent denosumab. These drugs would simply not be available if it weren't for clinical trials. So it's important to keep in mind that clinical trials are always a good treatment option for you if you qualify. What is a clinical trial? Clinical trial is testing new drugs and therapies, but it's broader than that, and I'll explain it in a moment. But clinical trials provide early access to patients who may need new therapies and who may have run out of drugs, as well as providing important knowledge that leads to a better understanding of the treatment and uh, hopefully approval of the new drug. This also includes some of the newer immunotherapies that many of us are excited about, such as CAR T cells, or checkpoint inhibitors, or bite molecules, or even immunotoxins. All of these are being studied in clinical trials. So basically, a clinical trial is a scientific investigation examining the safety and efficacy of therapies in human subjects. Uh, the FDA has a uh, a code a code of federal regulations that defines what a clinical trial is uh, as the clinical investigation of a drug administered or dispensed to or involving one or more human subjects and these trials. Uh, In many cases, depending on the type of trial that I'll explain, it may be a placebo, it may be an investigational drug, or it may be a unique combination of drugs that is being studied in an effort to improve therapy. And safety and efficacy are paramount in these trials uh, so that patients are protected from untoward side effects. And there's a very strict code of federal regulations. Uh, in Part 21, it's a rather dry reading, but if you, wanna, if you need some sleep one night, you can get it out and start reading it. But it covers all aspects of treatment and monitoring of patients in clinical trials. And uh, anyone who wants to do a clinical trial has to follow this code. Now, who are the sponsors of clinical trials? Well, most of them today are pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, uh, and many of these trials are global, such that the trial of a new drug not only is taking place in the U.S., but spans Europe and Asia, and patients are recruited into these trials worldwide, The NIH in the U.S. will sponsor trials, and there are several important cooperative groups that sponsor trials uh, in an effort to more broadly include more patients. Sometimes university or medical schools or, or specific investigators will sponsor their own trials that they have developed and written and brought forward and so things have really changed in terms of the reach of these trials. So the trials are many different kinds of trials. We're talking today mainly about uh, testing experimental treatments and new combinations of drugs, but it could also involve new surgical approaches or radiation therapy There are also prevention trials, trials of new agents or interventions to prevent a disease from occurring, perhaps in a high-risk population. There are also diagnostic trials that are uh, Basically, designed to find better testing or better procedures to diagnose a particular condition. There are screening trials that look to pick up disease much more early in a way to intervene at in an earlier stage. And there are also quality of life trials, and these are often included in some of the trials that we do for myeloma in an effort to get a better measurement of how a new drug or combination impacts the treatment of of patients. Now, to develop a new trial, there has to be an extensive amount of preclinical research. And this is research conducted in the laboratory in test tubes or in animal models designed to learn about the drug, learn about its safety in in the animal models uh, before... Uh, going forward with uh, human subjects in in the clinical trials, and these uh, tests are very important at preparing a protocol which is a a a way to treat a patient and conduct the the research that 's being done. And this is part of an application process made to the FDA because the FDA actually has to give their permission to even move forward in clinical trials in human subjects. And all of this goes together in what's called a new drug application uh, to go forward with uh, this kind of research. And all that has to happen beforehand. Now, the first type of trial in human is usually called a phase one trial. And this is an initial study, the first in human studies that are done to to determine really the the metabolism and the pharmacology of the drug, but very importantly, the safety of the drug uh, in the earliest trials. And phase one trials generally try to find a tolerable dose that they think may have some evidence of efficacy. And while efficacy uh, the, or, the effectiveness of a drug is not the primary focus of a phase one trial. It can help guide uh, how to move forward. The second type of trial is called a phase two trial. And these are studies that are more focused on efficacy to look for a dosing that seems to have effectiveness against a disease or condition. And those uh, really are used also. To design the dose that will move forward into a later stage trial, a so called phase three study. Phase three studies are expanded controlled trials generally have a comparison group where you compare a standard treatment to the newer drug or drug combinations uh, and this type of trial is looking really for better level of proof of efficacy. While at the same time maintaining acceptable safety. And this is the most common route to FDA approval. Once a drug is approved, there may be other trials, so called phase four trials, which can be used to better define who benefits from treatment and how best to use the drug. Now, These phase one trials are designed really with safety and tolerability in mind, but again, getting more information about the uh, uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. These trials can involve single patients in increasing doses or small groups, generally three to six patients that receive a particular dose before moving forward with it. And as I said, the phase two trials are designed in larger studies and they're really designed uh, to determine the proper dosing for the phase three studies. The phase three studies are really the uh, most important part because that's the one that generally leads to FDA approval. Now, part of the phase three trial involves what's called randomization. Randomization means that a patient may be randomly assigned to either the experimental treatment arm or the uh, control or comparison one. And it's very important because it eliminates selection bias. One of the things that's very important is if, you tr- if you're treating a group of patients, you want to make sure that the comparator group has the same characteristics in terms of their disease as the group receiving the experimental treatment. And the randomization al- tends to eliminate this type of bias. It also may uh, eliminate some of the what are called co-variables, which are risk factors that can be uh, accounted for in the randomization process. And uh, in some cases, if you're using a placebo, it facilitates the blinding to the treatment for the staff and treating physicians. And a, and a placebo is basically a sugar pill. They tend to not be used too much in cancer treatment trials because no one wants to get an ineffective therapy, which is essentially what a placebo is supposed to be. So most of the randomization uh, randomized to a standard of treatment that is considered uh, appropriate therapy for a group of patients at that point in their time. And I think with that I'll stop and uh, turn turn it back to you, Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bensinger. That was really an outstanding presentation and actually a great kind of introduction to the entire call, setting the stage for it as well. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, myeloproliferative neoplasms program, clinical director, leukaemia service, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine while Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Morrow is going to be addressing clinical trial recruitment, um, who is eligible to participate in these trials, and who is on the clinical trial team. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Morrow, to my esteemed colleague. Yes. Uh,
3: thank you, Carolyn. Um, and, boy, Dr. Benzinga really kind of got us started off great with uh, a lot of information about the nuts and bolts of clinical trials, so I'll, next, in the next few minutes, cover a few more topics, starting with clinical trial recruitment. Um, recruitment sounds like you're signing up for the Army or the military. Um, and you're volunteering. I think there's always a little bit of hesitancy um, with the, some of the terms we use um, when it comes to clinical trials. But um, let's think of the term recruitment as how do we find the best treatment options, um, which often can be um, uh, in, through clinical trials for 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 all patients. Um, as Dr. Benzinger said, I think you can never underestimate the the power of clinical trials. Um, they become more and more commonly. Um, a high priority, um, a, a means to really uh, touch the lives of many, many more patients. To uh, we have much more faster drug um, development and drug approvals. So they they've moved away from um, being just an experimental treatment for patients who have maybe had many other treatments and who are, have have um, no standard treatments. We we really incorporate many trials asking questions about what's our best first treatment, second treatment, next treatment. Um, Some some subtle questions about optimizing our treatment, many, many different modalities. But, again, answering the question about recruitment, I think um, we heard that clinical trials can come from many different sources. I think the most common path is a patient is seen by a doctor uh, who may be aware of research, maybe the investigator himself may know of a clinical trial in their center, where the light bulb goes on and, and a patient is deemed to be eligible for a clinical trial based on their condition, the questions they ask, their needs. Um, and of course, so of course, that's the most basic. As large cancer centers will often actively try to look at patients who are coming to say what trials may be um, uh, what, uh, might be a good fit for this patient. Can we discuss different trials um, during an appointment? Um, so there are many different opportunities. Um, cancer centers and, and large medical centers, and even um, regional and community centers, are, are not just the places where patients can be identified in the office sometimes um uh, through patient advocacy groups like cancer care and others you know we we can educate people uh, aware make them aware that clinical trials are available um, uh, uh, post bulletins about um new trials new new initiatives um, most importantly, the patient themselves can can be a a strong uh direction from which recruitment can come from. Am I eligible for a clinical trial? what are my treatment options for my condition? Um, and the, the U.S. and our system has been very good to try to make it easy and very singular that clinical trials that are um, run in the United States are all uh, should be searchable and, and something you can find on, on a website, clinicaltrial.gov, which is a U.S. government-based website where we register clinical trials. And you can search by a, a diagnosis, a cancer center, um, uh, many different ways to find clinical trials. Now, of course, it can be a little hard to navigate, Um, and to translate, but that's what the the team's about, and I'm going to cover that as my my third point. Um, um, Before I um, I lose all my time, I think I should cover the next topic, which is who is eligible. I think many people who have, some familiarity with clinical trials, will have heard the term inclusion and exclusion criteria. So, as Dr. Benzinger mentioned, you know, clinical trials are trying to define populations um, who are suitable for correct treatments. The treatment, the intervention, as we call it, can be many different and many different levels. Sometimes quite um, experimental and quite multifaceted. Sometimes quite simple. Um, but in general, in order to answer a scientific question and el- eligible for a clinical trial in the terms of the scientific side, we need to be able to say that we have a, a certain kind of person with a certain, con- with a certain condition. Um, at a certain stage, but um, it can be variable from trial to trial. Some of the general things that are asked about is someone's other health conditions, comorbid conditions, as are called. What other health problems are active or inactive might affect the person's treatment. if the the, the the treatment side effects. Um, you know, drilling down to some more of the details, you know, as investigators in research, we're often asking how is someone, how how is someone's other systems functioning, um, meaning. What might their risk of side effects be based on variables that we can look at? And this can be tough because sometimes people have the right condition and it seems like a, an excellent treatment option and promising, but there's something about that specific person that makes them ineligible because of a small thing. Um, the kidneys, the liver, the blood count, something isn't right about the numbers. And while that seems a bit strict and, and sometimes cool or sometimes limiting, it allows us, because we're asking a scientific question in a trial, to say with certainty that um, we ha- we minimize the variables to allow us to, with precision, tell us what we need to know about a treatment, about how, about is it safe to give in a phase one trial? What's the right dose in a phase two trial? Is it better than our previous treatment in a phase three trial? So we have to be a bit picky, if you will, sometimes. When it comes to the disease, some of the treatment um, eligibility are very broad, meaning some trials include people with many different types of cancers, which seems a bit interesting. But as targeted therapy develops, we know that sometimes that, that medication may work in many different diseases. For example, in blood cancers, if we find an enzyme or a target that may be common to chronic leukemia, acute leukemia, uh, maybe lymphoid and myeloleukemia, or more uh, pre-leukemia conditions like myelodysplasia and, as well, acute leukemia, we will test that in, in, in broadly, especially earlier on it also might be very narrow. Um, one example might be, you know, a trial uh, running in the U.S. called the BEAT-AML trial, where we're be looking for patients and s- trying to fit very carefully a patient's molecular-specific findings in acute myeloid leukemia to a targeted therapy. Um, and uh, th- so, so so, the eligibility criteria, again, um, hopefully I've uh, given you a bit of uh, insight into that. Lastly, I want to cover the team. And so the team, I'll kind of go down the list. I would say the clinical trial team should be, uh, it's a number of people, and they may not be all transparent. So there's obviously the, the doctors uh, or the investigators, the clinicians, uh, care providers. That may be the primary investigator. That's maybe the physician that has designed the trial or is the most knowledgeable or is leading the trial. And the person that's probably paying the most attention to detail um, with regards to the trial specifics, not the care of the patient. That, that, that Those details are, are looked at by everyone but that person may um uh be known or sometimes isn't sometimes uh, another physician who is very knowledgeable about the treatment and may have enrolled you know uh, many patients So sometimes even being primarily enrolling patients could be a, what's called a sub investigator or an investigator um these are all the clinical team members these are the folks that will be perhaps going through an informed consent the documentation where a clinical trial seems like a good fit and there's an agreement um between patient and and the healthcare team that this is something that we all agree should be pursued, um, and um, it's in the patient's best interest. So, so there's a, a few different types of um, care providers, and they have sort of slightly different roles. But their their main goal is to safely and effectively manage a clinical trial and take care of the patients that are part of the clinical trial. Um, there's a lot of work involved in those roles, uh, making sure all the the uh, the t's are crossed, the, the i's are dotted, and everything is is managed to um, to in the end be able to again. Um, scientifically answer questions, um, uh, clinically help patients, um, if if and always when possible, and uh, and manage it efficiently and and, and, uh, properly. Other key key team members include the research nurses, which are, again, care providers which can be very familiar with the the, uh, treatment, may have um, taken care of many patients, often can answer some of the, uh, the myriad of questions that come up during clinical trial treatment, and Often have direct contact with the investigator, know the ins and outs of the of the protocols, as we say, um, can help uh, manage some of the uh, challenges that come up during clinical trials, which is strict schedules and testing that needs to be done and other other things that um, patients really need to hear about. There's another person who in the clinical trial team is very important, the research coordinator or the research staff. They may not be clinical providers. they may not you may not see them in the office or talk to them, but boy, they do a lot of work behind the scene to manage the information that's part of a clinical trial, all the data regarding the patient and all their facts, the treatment and the details of how the treatment is being given, all the side effects, any problems that come up. They're very carefully managed through a series of, of pathways, things such as um, adverse event reporting, any side effects. Um, so the research coordinators are an important part of the team. Um, at the institutional level, there's the um, the uh, regulatory board, the IRB. There's the regulatory committees on a, on a hospital a campus or cancer center. I'm not going to get into too much detail there, but suffice it to say that there's a very uh, well-oiled and and organized way which a clinical trial is vetted through um, uh, committees that include physicians, administrators, patients, often um, pharmacists, a number of different people to make sure that it, things are written properly, followed properly, uh, followed through on properly, and the clinical trial conduct is exactly what it needs to be, which is precise and safe. Lastly, the sponsor, which Dr. Benzinger mentioned, and, and um, uh, to some degree. And that can be many different people. It could be a pharmaceutical company. It could be a cooperative group, a group of uh, hospitals, physicians um, in a region or a country that are, are managing research. Um, and We get, again, a, a lot of support from those that are developing medications. Um, sometimes we're doing this independently. And many times this is through government uh, funding as well. So I hope I've educated you on those three points. And, I, and, and in, in the spirit of leaving time for others, I'm going to stop there and uh and thank you for your attention.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really outstanding, excellent, and very uh, comprehensive in terms of who is on the team and all the information. So, thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Christina Gowan. Dr. Gowan is Assistant Professor of Medicine, University of Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, Research Collaborator, Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Gowan is going to be addressing what happens in blood cancer. Trials, the meaning of informed consent, and benefits and risks of participation. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gowan.
4: Well, thank you, Carolyn, so much for truly the opportunity to speak on this wonderful teleconference, and thank you, Dr. Benziger and uh, Morrow, for a wonderful lead-up. So, I will be discussing what happens in a blood cancer clinical trial, and so. I'd like to give you a general overview of the clinical trial, and that's already been done somewhat. But I'd like to discuss what occurs before the trial, during the trial process itself, and finally afterwards. Before you take part in a trial, a doctor or another researcher will really ensure that you understand the purpose of the trial and how that trial is going to affect you. It's really important to discuss the potential risks and the potential benefits of participating and this process is truly a process and it's called the informed consent process. So the informed consent process is the process of providing you with that key information about the research study before you decide whether you want to accept the offer to take part in the trial. The research team will provide an informed consent document to you that includes the details of the study, such as its purpose, how long it's expected to last, any tests or procedures that will be done as part of the research, and who to contact for further information. Really important to note that if English is not your first language, be sure to ask for an informed consent document in your native language. The informed consent document also explains the risks and the potential benefits, and we'll discuss a little bit about this later. You can then decide whether to sign the document. And I encourage you to take that informed consent document, read it over, truly understand it before making your decision. It's important to understand that participation in a clinical trial is voluntary and you can lead the study at any time. So once you've decided you do want to participate, you may be introduced to a term that actually was uh, introduced earlier in the call by Dr. Binsinger, and this is the topic of randomization. In randomized trials, you'll be allocated to a treatment group or control group at random. And usually this is done with the help of a computer program, and this helps to minimize the doctor or patient influence on the actual trial results, so really important. So if you are in the treatment group or the intervention group, you may be given uh, the new treatment that's being tested, but if you're allocated to what's known as the control group, you may be given an existing treatment, a standard treatment as Dr. Benzinger had uh, stated earlier in the call, this is typically the standard of care therapies that we're testing our new cancer treatments on in the world of cancer care that we want to ensure that our patients are getting some form of therapy that will be active against their disease. You may also get uh, a placebo and other trials or no treatment, a weightless control, depending on the different kinds of trials, the kind of intervention, whether or not it's a medical therapeutic or maybe even an exercise intervention, which is more and more being done, other types of interventions. Um, Moving on, I think we talked a little bit about the idea of a control, and so it's Even, it's important to understand that even if you're in the control group, you're still a very important part of the trial. And the results from this group are are really what measures the effect of the test and uh, the treatment being compared with. So don't forget the treatment being tested may be no better than control, which is why the trial needs to be done. Some other terms that you may hear is the term called a blind trial. And in this, researchers won't tell you which group you're in, which means you might be receiving either the new treatment or the control, but you won't know which. And this is to prevent you from guessing which treatment you're getting and the treatments are truly made to look as similar as possible. Researchers designed blinded trials because if you knew which treatment you were getting, it could potentially influence how you feel or how you're reporting your symptoms. Some trials are actually double-blind, which means that neither you nor the doctors treating you know who's getting which treatment until the uh, the actual analysis is being performed. So once you've decided to participate and you've really kind of received, discussed, and understood the informed consent, and you've been randomized, what happens? Typically, the researchers are running the trial really carrying out different tests for you, finding out if the treatment is working. Maybe this is laboratories, maybe these are scans. Um, At the same time, they'll be looking out for, really importantly, any side effects. So as a clinical trial participant, incredibly important to be relaying all of the side effects which may be occurring, if they are occurring. And this includes psychological symptoms. You may be asked to fill out questionnaires or to keep a diary. And this idea of quality of life was brought up earlier on the call. And that's a lot of what we're trying to get at in these questionnaires and the diaries. So really important, again, to be sure that you're keeping an accurate description of how you're feeling on the trial. Sometimes cost effectiveness of treatments is also part of the data that we're trying to capture as researchers. And so if you're um, asked about questions and if you're able to work or the number of times you visit the doctor or nurse, that's helping to kind of clarify if these therapies are cost effective and equally important to answer. So what I'd like to emphasize is that all questionnaires, all diaries, these kinds of components are just as important as some of the other data points we try to capture as researchers such as laboratories and scans and side effects. So please always answer them uh, thoroughly, honestly, because they are an important part of the clinical trial process. At the end of the trial, the results are typically made available to everyone who took part and they're published regardless of what they show. And uh, that is, uh, it's to demonstrate how the results really add to the available knowledge of our cancer therapies. And so what are the potential benefits of participating in a clinical trial? And truly, there are are many different potential benefits of participating, which include and certainly are not limited to uh, a few that I'll describe here, but it's truly the opportunity to help others by contributing to the knowledge of the new treatments or procedures. And that's how we advance this field. It's also to gain access as a patient to new treatment that perhaps you would not have access to otherwise. It's also a benefit to receive really regular and careful medical attention from a research team that includes the doctors, a research coordinator, and other health professionals, which tends to be a little bit more intensive than what you would get otherwise. There's also potential risks, and these are really discussed thoroughly in the informed consent document. Uh, There may be unpleasant, serious, or even life-threatening events in an experimental treatment. So it's very important to to understand those and discuss them thoroughly. So some important questions that you may want to ask your treatment team before enrolling in a clinical trial are, what are the short-term benefits, long-term benefits? And then on the flip side, what are the short-term risks? and potential long-term risks, and what are the potential side effects? It's important to understand what are the other options available, and what are the standard options, and how do the risks and the possible benefits of this trial compare with those options? So in general, clinical trials are carefully designed to minimize the risk and maximize the benefits to all that take part in whatever treatment they receive. But again, it's so, so important to understand the trial you're considering to participate in thoroughly and truly take the time to process the information, informed consent prior to making your decision and be sure that you understand the potential risks and the potential benefits as well as the alternative kind of uh, standard of care options before enrolling. And uh, with that, I would love to turn the call back over to
1: Carolyn and the rest of our uh, speakers for today. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Gowan. That was really very informative. Excellent. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is an instructor, Harvard Medical School, Department of Hematology, Oncology, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. Um, And Dr. O'Donnell is going to address how and where clinical trials are conducted, how and where you may participate in a trial, and specific questions to ask your health team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to, Dr., to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell.
5: Thank you very much, and thank you to everyone participating in today's call. We've now heard three wonderful presentations highlighting a lot of the different features of clinical trials and some of the important questions, um, getting at what you should be looking at as a patient, I'm going to go over some of those topics, but hope not to be too redundant and maybe focus on some other areas uh, to kind of broaden what we've heard today. So um, the first subject we were to address was how and where clinical trials are conducted. Dr. Bensinger uh, discussed much of the that there are both uh, clinical trials that are conducted nationally and internationally. Um, in the United States, they're primarily led by academic hospitals, but are also uh, available in larger private practices. We have a, a very fortunate in the United States to have access uh, to really the cutting edge clinical trials. Um, I want to underscore his point as well that it is because of these clinical trials uh, in multiple myeloma in particular that we have been able to advance the field, and um, these are so important for both the patients and the doctors trying to help the patients so that we really have the resources and the treatments uh, to better our care of blood cancers so Dr. Bensinger talked a little about how clinical trials are conducted. I'm going to talk about them just as a quick overview as well, kind of in the context of the last question about how you can participate in clinical trials. So as mentioned, clinical trials typically originate in a couple different fashions, uh, but one of them is through an investigator who's typically a doctor that has an idea for a clinical trial, and some examples may be combining different approved therapies in a in a new way, or taking a different drug, maybe daratumab, and combining it with Revlimid and Velcade and dexamethasone, and seeing if you can improve the outcomes for patients. And these doctors then write up a proposal for a pharmaceutical company who typically makes the drugs that we're investigating, and we ask for funding or free drug to run this trial. Other studies are run by the pharmaceutical companies themselves. For example, a drug company has a new drug that they would like to bring into practice or they'd like to get FDA approved, and they write and fund the entire trial and partner with doctors to help enroll patients. Um, So that's kind of a framework, and I think, again, it's just important to understand the three phases of clinical trials when thinking about your eligibility because they're not all the same. So a Phase one study... Uh, which is the one where a new drug is being introduced. This is a first in human study, meaning that it's being tested first extensively on cell lines and then in animal models, and it shows good evidence, early evidence, that it might be effective for treating a particular cancer. And these trials are typically offered in patients who've had a lot of prior therapy and don't have a lot of other new options. And this makes sense ethically, right, because we don't want to try something in an experimental fashion if we have other approved and effective options. So the goal of these studies is to determine the right dose for patients. So when the trial initially begins, a very low dose is used, often one that might not be high enough to be of therapeutic benefit, but we need to be sure that it's safe before we begin to escalate the dose. The dose is then escalated in small amounts until a maximum tolerated dose is reached. Once we have a dose, then we can move it into the phase two study. All study drugs, all new drugs follow this pathway. This new dose is then tested in a larger group of people with the goal of seeing how safe it is and how well it works. And if in a large group the drug works well and is well-tolerated, it then moves on to Phase three. And these are often very large studies, Phase three studies, run by pharmaceutical companies that compare the clinical trial treatment with the standard of care. A standard of care is the best-known current treatment. And the goal of these studies demonstrate that the new treatment is as good or better than the current standard of care. Patients are typically randomized, and we've heard a lot about randomization. So you're put on one of two treatment arms, and the reason that this is done through a computer is to keep the trials free from bias. So as you, the patient, are thinking about clinical trials, it's important to have this framework as your mind, as you think about what you might want to consider or where you are in your cancer or what might make the most sense to choose from. So if you're interested in learning about clinical trials, you would want to start that discussion with your own physician and see if your treatment center offers any clinical trials. If so, you can see if any of those options might be a nice fit for you. An important thing to know about clinical trials is that they do require a commitment from you. Unlike when you receive a standard of care therapy, there's not a lot of room for deviation from the protocol. The study lays out a very specific plan of when visits need to occur, what tests need to be done, and how and when treatment needs to be given. Um, There's a large range, and we've talked about many of the different types of clinical trials, but clinical trials uh, may require extra visits or extra tests that would be more than the standard of care. So it's very important for you as a patient that you understand what is required and to make sure it's something you want to commit to. That said, all clinical trials are voluntary, and if you find that it's too much or not undesirable, you can withdraw at any time. And so... The other piece of this is access to trials, so if you're at a cancer treatment center that does not offer clinical trials, as mentioned before, clinicaltrials.gov, which is sponsored by the NIH, National Institute of Health, is a free website that provides a full list of all clinical trials available. As mentioned before, all clinical trials must be registered. Uh, through our government and provide details about the study and the eligibility criteria. So you can search by your cancer type or by the phase of study or by the location of the study to start to narrow down what options might fit your needs. This website will show you where the trials are being run so that you can locate a hospital that would work for you if you had to travel. But I think in choosing a location, you want to be mindful of the fact that studies can require multiple visits over long periods of time. So location and schedule needs to be one that is sustainable, both financially and from a life logistics standpoint when you factor these in. So what are the specific questions you should ask your team? We've heard a wonderful list by Dr. Gowan uh, about the kinds of questions. What are the other options? Um, So I'll focus on some other questions. One is to be directed at your local team who would be referring you to a clinical trial and um, the other towards the clinical trial team itself. So if you identify a trial that might be of potential interest to you and you want to understand the visit schedule or whether or not you'd be eligible, these are important questions to answer before you start booking plane fares and spending money to get somewhere. There are often relatively strict eligibility criteria, which we've heard about, about who can be on the study. And... Clinical trials can be more stringent than those that are used for approved drugs because it's important to ensure patient safety, but we also have to make sure that there's an interpretable result and not a lot of confounding variables when we run clinical trials. So, if the clinical trial is not open locally and you'll be traveling a distance to learn about the trial, I would recommend that you ask both your doctor and the study team at the trial location to do a preliminary review of the eligibility criteria to make sure there's not some obvious reason you might not be eligible. So, I think in terms of blood cancers, a great example of this are CAR T-cell therapies. This is a new immunotherapy. It's not yet approved by the FDA, but it's being offered in small clinical trials across the country. Many patients are interested in learning about these studies and receiving this therapy. And it's a relatively new treatment, and so the criteria for getting into these studies are very strict. So this is an example of where it might be worth reaching out to the research team and reviewing your cancer history in a preliminary fashion to make sure you're eligible. CAR T-cell therapy also requires a significant commitment from the patient. In addition to the weeks needed for the actual treatment itself, there's a 30-day window following the therapy in which a patient must remain in close proximity to the hospital. This can be a long period of time to be away from home, and it can be a large financial burden. So it's important to consider these factors and ask about them uh, as you make your decisions about where you might look at clinical trials. And so visit schedules are also important, particularly if you're someone who's working. In phase one studies, there's often some extra blood tests and sometimes it requires that you be in in a hospital infusion chair getting bloods drawn on a regular basis. Um, And so you need to understand the scope of what the trial requires uh, and make sure it's something that you can do with your work schedule or life schedule and that you want to do. Um, In terms of compensation, Some studies provide reimbursement for travel. Generally, people don't get paid for participation, but it's worth asking about travel reimbursement. And so, kind of in conclusion here, we're fortunate at this point in history in the treatment of blood cancers to have so many new therapies under exploration. And we rely on these trials to bring new treatment to our patient. If were not for clinical trials, we would not have the therapies that we have today. And as a doctor, I very much appreciate my patients' participation in clinical trials. And we continue to work hard to find new drugs and new combinations to help blood cancers. Thank you.
1: Uh, thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really excellent and very um, informative. Thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Elias Jabour. Dr. Jabour is Associate Professor, Department of Leukemia, Division of Cancer Medicine, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Jabour is going to address how to access resources for these trials, finding blood cancer trials that are actively recruiting, and just discuss your quality of life concerns and questions. Um, with the clinical trial team. It's so my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jabor.
6: Thank you, Dr. Messer. Uh, thank you for inviting me today. And after listening to all my colleagues and I'm um, the last speaker, I don't think I have much to add. I think all my objectives to cover today were covered by my colleagues. But I want to go back and highlight some tips, essentially accessing resources for blood cancer trials, uh, the trials to recruiting and the tips to discuss uh, regarding your expectations and quality of life. When I want to go back and start that, we were here today, as my colleagues have mentioned, because of clinical trials, uh, especially in leukemias. Uh, these are rare diseases, and therefore they should be always referred to clinical trials, and patients should always seek uh, these uh, options uh, first. And this should start once somebody is diagnosed with blood cancer. Or at any time during the treatment of blood cancer. No, we don't live in a empty space uh, with the social media, with all the connection we have. Each one of us, no matter where we live, we can connect with centers of excellence where trials are happening. We can start easily by going on a website, looking for clinicaltrial.gov, where all trials worldwide are registered and the trial has a number. And in fact, when you access this website, you can click on the link that will take you to the center where the trial is happening. Uh, for example, you're looking for something on ALL, uh, surgery relapse, or mixed phenotype leukemia, quite rare disease. You can go on the website clinicaltrial.gov, and then from there it will direct you to MD Anderson, to Mimoison Kettering, to Donna Farber, or whatever. So you can identify what the trial is, and with the trial is a multi center trial. So you can pick the center close to home, uh, or only a single arm trial, where you're a, uh, one center where you have to go travel to the trial where this, the center where this trial is happening. Now, so that being said, uh, in addition to uh, the clinicaltrial.gov, there's leukemia-reform societies, there are other societies as well, all the alliance groups where they work together, and your doctor, no matter where he's located, I'm sure he's part of a network where they can guide you or orient you to the trials are available in their network, in their centers, whether they're a group of private practices or academic uh, settings. So then you have a cancer, uh, you have a diagnosis, you're looking for the clinical trials, you identify some. Then the next question is, uh, where do we go from there? We have a trial at MD Anderson, for example. Are they recruiting for this disease? My colleagues cover different setting of trials, what we call the phase one, phase two, and phase three trials. These trials, they open and close to assess for safety, especially the early trial, the phase one. So when the trial is active and opening, for a certain time it may be on hold to assess for safety. It's important, therefore, once you make your next step to see the trials are being activated, they're being recruiting or not. And the easiest way to do it is just when you get to this trial to identify the PI, and usually the emails is present to contact the PI, uh, you directly as a patient or your doctor to call the PI to say, well, we have this trial where you're recruiting patients. I often get emails from patient, their family is telling me, well, we have this, my cousin has this, or my son has this cancer, uh, I need to know whether I'm, your trial is recruiting, yes or no. So that is, we identify whether we can recruit a patient, yes or no. Now, there's something about expectations here, and uh, being a, working at a tertiary center, sometimes I get calls, for, oh, well, we're on this trial, so uh, you need to keep in mind that the phase one trial essentially will always look for efficacy, it's a focus is safety. Then a the phase two study is essential for efficacy. Phase three study to compare to the best treatment available. So it's Unfair, or I uh, uh, understand the frustration. We want to see efficacy, but phase one in patients who failed multiple therapy having complete remission of 50%. That is too much. So we need to set expectations. We need to understand where we're standing today and what we are looking to achieve in these clinical trials. Often, I get patients asking me, "What do I get from it? What benefit I do get?" And even if you're getting randomized to the standard of care, well, we all benefit. Uh, And the patient who's coming today would benefit from the knowledge of what we've done in the past. So the trials are always benefiting people, but it's really important to set the expectations and to know what I'm looking to achieve in it. Now, in addition, we get calls saying, well, am I eligible for the trial? Can I get into this trial? Well, we can look into that and we can advise, but the criteria, the screening will only happen once we see a patient. Because while I'm getting a call from a patient who lives in uh, Montana coming to Houston, he did well, but when he comes to Houston, he had a fever, and therefore he won't be eligible at that time because of infection. Because with the trial, it's always strict criteria for inclusion. So, yes, call us, reach out to the PI, check for recruiting uh, a trial, assess feasibility overall, but again, the enrollment will only happen once you clear it, on site to see whether you're eligible yes or no and finally one more word about why do i favor clinical trials i think research starts once the drug is commercial is approved because the companies or investigators at the beginning they're on a pilot randomised trial to get an approval and often we get the label we get drug approved but then Tuning the treatment, optimizing the care, optimizing the dose of the treatment, improving on safety will only start once the drug is approved and commercially available. So yet, even though there's drug commercially available, clinical trials are also important, whether it's uh, phase two, phase three, or phase four, to assess for better administration schedule for a better combination with the goal at this stage is to further improve the outcome. So these are really uh, something you should look for, especially in patients with blood cancers. Finally, the discussion is really important. Don't be shy of ask questions. I think it's a dialogue between uh, the patient and his families, uh, the team medical team providing the care locally or in a clinical trial setting in order to deliver what the patient is needing and again I highlight something for quality of life is really crucial and mainly in early clinical trials what we call the phase one Uh, if I have a clinical trial for example where my patient will stay in the hospital for four weeks doing PK studies uh, where it's a phase one I should be honest as well with the patient and their families what we're looking to achieve do I want to be in the hospital for the whole month for the phase one that I have no clue of the outcome or maybe uh, spending time at home with my family, with my beloved one. I think the dialogue should always be transparent. What do we need to expect to achieve and preserve the quality of life? So finally, uh, without these trials, we will not be where we are today. I think in leukemia, in particular, it's my, uh, my field of interest. We've made tremendous progress in chronic leukemias, CML, no ALL and In AML, we have a lot of things that would not happen without the trials, without the the participation of our patients. All, in this case, work together for the same goal to find a cure and improve the outcome of our patients. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Shibuya. That was really outstanding as well. Thank you. This has been amazing. and um, Thank you all. And I, we do have time for questions, and so I'm going to ask um, Glenda to explain to her how to cure questions. We're going to take as many of your questions as possible, and if we don't get your questions, what we will do is I will explain to you at the end how to get your questions answered, okay? So but let's see what we can take right now. So, um, Glenda?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one.
1: So there's a question from our online participants and I'm gonna give this question to Dr. Bensinger. Um, are clinical trials in the U.S. and internationally approved similarly?
2: Well, there are um, governing bodies uh, in the U.S., the FDA, of course, and in Europe, there's a European uh, Union governing body, and they all adhere to the same general principles. Uh, which is really uh, informed consent, protecting the patient, safety of the treatment, and very close monitoring for outcome. And so, I would say that regardless of whether you have a, you're in a trial in Europe or whether you're in a trial in the U.S., there's a lot of overview and, and protections that will uh, ensure uh, that the trial is conducted responsibly and patients are protected.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, And um, we have another question, um, and this one uh, for Dr. O'Donnell. Um, How will I know if the study treatment is working for me? Will general results of the trials be provided to me?
5: So that's a great question. The results of the trial, so how the trial is doing at large, the other results, uh, from other patients will not be shared until very specifically appointed time points that's written into the protocol. How you are doing, so what your blood numbers look like, let's say if you had multiple myeloma, which is my specialty, how you're doing is monitored at every visit and that information is absolutely shared with you every time you're seen. If the therapy is working that's discussed and you're continued on the therapy. If the therapy is not working, if, for example, your M-protein and myeloma is rising, you, that would be shared with you and you would be taken off the study in favor of a different treatment that might be of greater benefit to you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, and um, and we have another question for Dr. Jabbour. Um <coughs> Will the study team continue to check on me after the treatment is over?
6: So to Excuse me, I didn't hear you well.
1: Oh, so will the study team continue to check on me after the clinical trial treatment is over?
6: Of course. Uh, so the question is, and it's a great question, will the research team continue to follow up on me after the study is over? Of course, because when we do a trial, of course well, the primary point of the study will depend on whether phase 1, phase 2, look for efficacy, uh, look for uh, safety concern, but we know clearly that there's some delayed toxicity that can be encountered, and we'll follow patients for survival. So yes, even though patients are being taken off study for whatever reason, we keep the follow-up on our patients for survival, for late toxicities, or for whether we can further improve the outcome by adding something else. So my short answer to the question, yes, we do follow up beyond the clinical trial. Excellent.
1: Thank you. And a question for Dr. Bensinger. among our online participants, so I have responsibilities such as keeping a log or filling out forms about my health. Uh,
2: it very much depends on the trial, but increasingly, uh, and more so with phase three randomized trials, patients are asked to keep track of quality of life measures so that it. They, uh, We can determine as best as possible how patients truly feel on one treatment or another, uh, and they may be asked to keep logs of their medication. This is especially true of oral medications where we want absolutely as much uh, assurance as possible that the patient is taking the prescribed medication and taking it correctly.
1: Thank you. And... Um one final question, I think, for uh, Dr. Donnell. Um, are non-therapeutic studies considered clinical trials?
5: Yes, they are. So, absolutely. So, as was mentioned in our earlier discussion, um, there can be a variety of clinical trials, not just drug clinical trials. So, outcomes research uh, looks at patient quality of life that can be studied prospectively meaning as you go along with your treatment, exercise um studies are another example of a non medical clinical trial uh where patients are uh evaluated for their physical well being at the beginning of a study and given specific exercises during treatment uh and then reassessed afterwards. So these are all re- clinical trials, yes. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Well, actually one final light breaking question for Dr. Shabour. um how, criti- how critical are clinical trials in blood cancers? Okay. We've discussed this, but
6: would be a nice thing to conclude with. Excuse me?
1: Oh, so how critical are clinical trials in blood cancers? I know
6: They are very critical. Blood cancers are real diseases. The only way we can improve the outcome, we can deliver better treatment is by doing clinical trials. You know, if and that should be done in a setting of co academic centers. Uh, There's a lot of tuning in these cancers, a lot of small things, target therapy. It's not one disease. It's a multiple. And therefore, really, it's important to have an accurate diagnosis and try to enroll in clinical trials. I want to give an example. There's recently drugs approved for ALL where they have a survival improvement of Seven months of uh, one month or two compared to standard of care that is not enough, yet yeah, they are approved and if we can do better in clinical trials to improve survival to one year or two, that will be great things in addition, you know the clinical trials may be cumbersome to the patient and maybe a burden, but the follow up is so rigorous, and a patient will be followed closely and have a close assessment, and we definitely do better at the long run so I think it's really critical for patients with blood cancer to seek clinical trials and to be enrolled in clinical trials.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I want to thank all of our speakers. who have been really outstanding. This has been an amazing, amazing program. Phenomenal, actually, frankly. And um, we really have the best of the best on this program. We also want to thank all of you who've asked such great questions online. Those are really terrific questions that allow us to expand upon some of the topics. And... Um, so now, in conclusion, I'd said that there, I know there are questions still in queue and and some of you still have questions, so I'm going to go address how you can get your questions answered. So for any um, medical questions that you still have, of course, your healthcare team is a wonderful resource for all of you, absolutely a terrific resource. We never want to sidestep them because they know the most about you. However, many of you also would like to, you know, contact another place that's credible to get some additional information to perhaps ask more informal questions to your healthcare team or to actually just bring some more information to yourself so you can feel more confident asking your questions. So we definitely recommend that you contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or from all of you on the call who prefer, their website is www.cancer.gov And they have a live chat feature where you can post your question and they will actually get, their information Specialists will get all the information for you that you want. Also, we talked about, um, in terms of clinical trial information, uh, www.cancerclinicaltrials.gov. It's a wonderful resource as well. Again, offering you those similar resources um, in terms of just accessing all the information that are registered on clinical trials in this country. And um, also... um, for those of you who actually um, would like to actually access some of the services of cancer care, let me just review what those are. We do offer practical and financial assistance to people living with um, cancers, blood cancers. Um, we also um, have a copay foundation, and we also do offer counseling services—a chance to talk with one of our trained oncology social workers—and you can do that both on the telephone. Or um, online, you can post your question online. And we also have a number of both telephone support groups and we also have 120 online support groups. So lots of support groups that you can uh, potentially access. Um, You you can visit our website um, and actually uh, www.cancercare.org and you can um, get all this information, register for an online support group and and one of our oncology social workers will follow up with you. You can call our 800 number at one 800 813 and again, you'll be sent all that information at the end of today's program and when you get your evaluation forms, all that information will be there for you. So most importantly, we would not want any one of you to leave today's program feeling you're alone. We want you to know you're part of the whole community of support. We're here for you. And I do want to mention to a program that we're doing like this one um, on June 25th. It's an update on car cell therapy, which we thought might be of interest to all of you. This is a uh, in terms of so stay tuned. It's uh, a many of you have signed up for it already, but if you haven't and if fits your schedule, um please do um sign up for it. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.